services. And during the offering, we're going to watch a video by the National Executive Director of the Vineyard, Phil Strout, and just a couple minutes long, but we thought this would be a good thing for um, us to hear him say this morning. So uh, take, take that moment when the basket passes to say, thank you, God, thank you that I can be here, and uh, then give your attention to Phil. So, Father God, thank you for your love for us, and thank you that uh, you call us to be part of something bigger than ourselves. Uh, God, we all want to be part of something bigger than ourselves, almost just in a natural realm way. But, Lord, we really, our hearts long to be part of what you're doing. We long to have intimate relationship with you. And we long to lay our lives down before you and to say, here we are. Take us, use us to accomplish your purposes in this world. And as we give right now, that's what we're saying, Father. That's what we're saying. In Jesus' name, amen. One of our core values in the vineyard, very clearly, is experiencing God. I love this. I love it that it's not something that we're just cognitively aware of, something we've read in a book, and it's historical. No, when we, in, in the vineyard, and that's why it, it, it came out as a core value, is because we believe God is to be known, experienced, something where it's tangible. Uh, we, we, we have that interface with God. One of the, our, our, this value of worshiping God in expressing love and receiving love. It's not something that is just cerebral. It is something that's real, it's tangible, it's physical, it's subjective, it's objective. It's, it's the real part of this. One of the, one of the uh, uh, things that a good friend of mine once said to me, he said, you know, Phil, he says, what I love about the vineyard, he says, is when you folks go to church, you really believe that God is going to be there also. And what he was trying to say was, you guys know you're going to experience God. We're not going to just sit down, stand up, put a dollar on the plate, walk away and have paid our duty. When we gather or driving down the road in the car, I love it that I can tell people, no, when I sing my, I sing the loudest, I sing in the car, I sing in the shower. When I'm, when I'm out, when I'm on my motorcycle, I experience God. And it's probably better because nobody can hear me singing. But, you know, th- this whole thing of experiencing God is so important. The vineyard can never walk away from this and stay vineyard. We cannot walk away from the experiencing God and the worshiping of the Lord and that intimacy with God. It's it's one of our values. But let me tell you this, if we were going to go and order, you know, one, two, three, it's going to be one of those top core things that we can never, ever walk away from. It's, what's, it's the difference between knowing about and actually personally knowing. So that's why we have it. We have it as a very high value. Worship. Worship God. Experience Him wherever you are. Hey, what's up, Vineyard? How's it going? <laughs> All right. Phil Stry, he's a pretty animated guy, isn't he? I love listening to him and talk. He has really good things to say, but I just love hearing his accent. That really draws me in. So my name is Luke. I am the director of Young Adults Ministry here at the Vineyard, along with Wilson. And um, one thing I want to say before we kind of dive into, into things this morning is that I have found that people sometimes are having difficulty understanding exactly what my job here is. And it's that phrase, young adults, that I've seen some people not quite fully understand. So I just want to take some time to talk about that. You see, when I'm talking to high schoolers about a young adult ministry, hey, come check out this young adult house group that meets on this night. 
I think the word in the phrase young adult that really is highlighted to them is adult. And so they're thinking, well, shoot, my parents are going to be at this thing. I'm not going to this. (laughs) And on the other hand, with those who have, let's just say, more wisdom due to more years of experience, I'll be talking with them about young adults. And I think the word that really stands out to them is young. And so they'll be asking me, oh, that's awesome. Have you been in Corian High School yet? And I'll say, well, you know, actually, young adults really refers to ages 18 to 30-ish, although it does, we do invite high schoolers to come, but our primary target audience would not be those who are at Corian High School, except for maybe some of those seniors. I can't tell you how many times people have called our meeting to me, a youth group, you know, how's your youth group going? Or called me a youth pastor. Um, and, but that question, I seriously, like five times people have asked me, have you gotten into Corey in high school yet? And first four times I answered it just like I told you. What I've started doing now, because I just like to have fun with people sometimes, is I've started saying when someone asks me, hey, have you been into Corey in high school yet? I'll be like, yeah, you know what? Actually, we have. You wouldn't believe how many teachers there are between the ages of 20 and 30. We've actually gotten like five or six of them in our ministry. And usually they'll give me a confused look and (laughs) I'll explain to them, no, young adults, not necessarily high schoolers, not the parents of high schoolers, but young adults. So there's that. All right. (laughs) We're in this series called The Gospel of the Kingdom. And the gospel, as Will and Van both said in the past two weeks, simply means an announcement of good news. And to start off the conversation this morning, I want to ask everyone a question. may require some honesty. Not the first one, but maybe for the second one. Here's the question. How many of you have ever learned something and then had to relearn that very thing because you need to get more proficient at it? Okay, learn then relearn. Pretty common occurrence. Next question, more honest. How many of you have learned something and then you were told you needed to relearn it but you kind of oppose that person or that idea. Yeah, <laughs> me too. This reminds me of when I first started driving. You see, I went through that six months of intensive, grueling driving training with my temps. And by the end of that, I was pretty much a master on the road, according to my own mind. And so my parents were trying to keep teaching me and were trying to keep on giving me advice when I already had my license. And I'm like, no, you don't understand. I'm a master now. I can drive perfectly. I did my six months, passed my test, I'm good. Until I wrecked my car two weeks after I got my license and (laughs) learned some humility there and then started taking, begrudgingly of course, but started taking tips and advice from my parents on how to drive. So anyways, relearning. It's something that is crucial to life in general. And I think it's especially cool for Christians, for us. We get to learn things, learn concepts like the gospel, like the kingdom, Jesus, atonement, all these things. We get to learn them. And then, based on those concepts, we take steps towards God. We give our heart to God because we learn how to do that in a better way. And as we take those steps toward God, the Holy Spirit gives us fresh revelations about those very topics. What's a revelation? Simply when God reveals something. So when God reveals something to you, 
that you didn't know before. And as we take these steps toward God, we receive these fresh revelations from the Lord. And these fresh revelations are what reignite the passion and excitement within us. And and then once we have reignited that passion, we take more steps toward God. We receive more fresh revelation. And this really cool snowball kind of avalanche effect can happen from that. On the other hand, when we think we have learned everything we need to know, when we think, okay, know everything about the gospel, everything about the kingdom, don't need to learn anything else. I've been there before many times myself. We kind of stay in this stagnating place and things aren't moving and our passions aren't being renewed. And because of that, we're taking smaller steps toward God and then there's no steps toward God and we kind of just stay where we are. In fact, that reminds me of of people, this, a certain group of people I used to oftentimes talk with. I'm going to talk more about this later, but for two years of my life, I spent probably an hour a day on a forum website debating about God's existence with atheists, agnostics, skeptics, people of other religions, and uh, even some people who were Christians. And just debating for an hour a day. It wasn't like hostile or anything. It was it was friendly, but every, I would say 99% of the atheists that I would debate with thought that they completely understood Christianity and had nothing new to learn about it, that they got it all. And I think that is part of the reason why the gospel message is so hard for them to accept because they think they know everything about it when in reality, they hardly know anything about it. And So relearning is crucial and it's actually really fun and really exciting. I say all that for this reason. Maybe when you heard this series is going to be about the gospel, you kind of like, oh shoot, I already know everything about the gospel. This is going to be boring. But I want to encourage you that I truly believe the Holy Spirit is going to be giving all of us fresh revelation about the gospel. Whether it's today, in the weeks to come, during worship, as you're thinking later after the service, I really truly believe that there's going to be fresh revelations and that passion and excitement is going to be reignited in us as it has before. So that's my encouragement to you. Now let's kind of dive into the segment of the gospel of the kingdom that I want to focus on. And that is the cross. Probably the most significant, I would say assuredly the most significant event ever to occur in human history. First Peter 3.18 says this, For Christ also suffered for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, in order to... What do you think the answer is there? He suffered for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, in order to make us obey him? In order to allow us to worship him? This is what it says. In order to bring us to God. That's why the cross happened in order for us to enter into relationship with God. And I believe the message of the cross is an invitation to humanity to enter into relationship with God, the creator, the sovereign one. And that it is all it's, it's an appeal to us to give more of our hearts and all that we know of our hearts to all that we know of his hearts. And I want to encourage you to give more of your hearts. I want to encourage all of us that we give more of our hearts to God today and not only today, but throughout the rest of this Christian walk that we are in. So, cross, most significant event 
ever to occur in human history. And I kind of want to talk a little bit about exactly what the cross is and why we need it. I know this is something that most of us have probably heard before, time after time after time. But I just want to do a quick review on the cross. You see, God, in the beginning, created people for a reason. He didn't just create us by accident. He didn't create us. He created us for a specific reason. And that reason was to be in relationship with him. In Acts 17, Paul is talking to a bunch of philosophers in Athens. And he says to them, when explaining this, from one ancestor, God made all the nations to inhabit the whole earth. And he allotted the times of their existence and the boundaries of the places where they would live so that they would search for God and feel around for him and find him. For he is not far from each one of us. See, all the, the, way, the reason God made us, the reason he put us on the planet where we are, everything in our lives that he has done for us has been ultimately for the purpose of relationship with him. That's why we exist. And that's why he created people. And he created people not only for that, but he actually made us to be completely fulfilled only in relationship with him. That there is no joy outside of relationship with God. No true joy. There's fake versions of it. There's no true joy. There's no true meaning outside of relationship with God. We have a God-shaped hole in our heart that can only be fulfilled by him. And this, this was true with Adam and Eve in the garden in the beginning. I don't have time to go through that whole story, but these two, Adam and Eve, male and female, were created to be in relationship with God. And for a time, they were in a perfect relationship with the Lord. Then we all know the serpent came in, which was Satan on earth, and deceived them into kind of taking a role in the relationship that they had with God that they weren't supposed to take. You see, we always talk about how with God, there is this mutual love. We love him. He loves us. It's this mutual thing. We're not slaves. But there certainly is a head in this relationship. We aren't the head. We submit to him. He is the one who is submitted to. There is a submission there. And the submission is actually for our own good. We can't find, we find more joy. We find more meaning. We find more truth in submitting to God more. So Adam and Eve decided they wanted to take the head position. They wanted to be the ones who controlled their own fate. They wanted control of their own lives. So they disobeyed what God had told them to do. They were unfaithful to the relationship. And when that happened, sin entered the world and sin caused a chasm between us and God relationship wise. And the sin this, that initial act of unfaithfulness is why there is so much depression, pain, hurting, suffering, everything bad in the world right now all came back from that one act of unfaithfulness. So God had to decide what he was going to do because we know that in Genesis 6, already by then, six chapters after the creation, we know that by then the world was in rough shape. And it says that the Lord was sorry that he had made humankind on the earth and it grieved him to his heart. So the Lord said, I will blot out from the earth the human beings I've created, people together with animals and creeping things and birds of the air, 
I'm sorry that I've made them. But Noah found favor in the sight of the Lord. Did you catch that? The world was completely evil. God, it, it broke God's heart. And he resolved that I can't allow the suffering to continue. I need to just end it all. And that was his plan. But Noah. Noah found favor in God's sight because Noah, although he was still a sinner, still broken, although there was still a chasm between him and God, he was doing his best to try to take steps toward God, to try to give God his heart. That he, was, he was going after this relationship thing. And God couldn't bear to wipe out Noah along with the rest of the evil in the world. So God saved Noah, as we all know, had him build the ark, and then gave him a rainbow in the sky, signifying God's promise to humanity that he would never destroy everyone on the earth ever again. But in saying that, God wasn't saying, oh, I'm cool with sin now. Sin's sin's okay. That wasn't the purpose of that. God was saying, I'm going to find another way. I couldn't bear to wipe out everyone, including this guy Noah and his family. So I'm going to find another way to deal with sin. And from Noah came Abraham, and from Abraham came the nation of Israel. From the nation of Israel came King David. From King David came Jesus, the Messiah, the Savior, God incarnate, who came into our world to defeat sin and death from the inside out. And the cross was Jesus being accused by his own people, being condemned by his government, put on the cross to die And take the punishment that we all deserved. And not only take our punishment, but also take away all of our shame and our guilt. How many of you know that the scriptures say God remembers our sins no more? In Hebrews 8. He chooses to forget them because of what Jesus did for us. And that includes not only ones in the past, but the ones that we are going to commit in the future. That was the cross. And I wanted to go through all of that just to put us back into thinking about how significant the cross really was, how beautifully orchestrated it was. And not only was this the most significant event ever to occur in human history, but this was, this is just the most beautiful message of love and reconciliation and restoration anywhere. There's no poem, no story, no movie. No book. Nothing that can compare to the message of the gospel. The message of the cross. And I was thinking about that recently. Just dwelling in that. And a troubling thought came to my mind that kind of always does when I'm thinking about this. And it's, if this message is so amazing, if this event was so significant, why does half the world not believe it? Why are there so many people in this world who reject it? And I was thinking about that and thinking about that. And what came to mind is that the same reason that humanity in the beginning were unfaithful to God is the same reason that half the world doesn't accept this message. It's because there's a real enemy in this world who has real power. And real strongholds. And this enemy afflicts us, our bodies, 
We know that from scripture and just from, from occurrences that there is this demonization kind of a thing. And that's why people will be growling and contorting their body and all this stuff when they are under, when they're being influenced by a demon, there's physical affliction. There's emotional affliction. The enemy certainly causes us depression and anger and, and all these negative emotions. But I don't think that a physical affliction or an emotional affliction is the major way that the enemy comes at us. I think the major way that the enemy keeps us from God, which is his mission, is by afflicting our minds. It's by messing with our heads. I'm actually living in a living example of this. For two years of my life, I was struggling with intellectual doubts about God's existence. And during this time, I was reading my Bible every day. I was, I wasn't, I was memorizing scripture. I was praying. I was leading people. I was having experiences with the Holy Spirit. But there's just this nagging doubt that would always come after any kind of experience. I would pray and then... Did you really, were you, were you really just talking to anyone? I would feel the Holy Spirit. And then did you really just feel that it was just this nagging, constant, irritating thing. And I dealt with that for two years of my life. And the way that I tried to alleviate those doubts was by diving into apologetics, which if you're not familiar with that term, apologetics are simply when one makes a logical defense for God's existence rational arguments for why God exists. I dove deeply into apologetics and that's why I spent two years of my life debating with people for about an hour a day, sometimes more than that online. And I was reading books about apologetics and I was learning every single argument you could possibly learn. I could tell you all the premises and the syllogisms and the conclusions about the first cause cosmological argument for God's existence proposed by Leibniz in the 15th century, the Kalam cosmological argument, the ontological argument, the moral argument, all these different arguments I could tell you about. And you would think that learning all these rational reasons for why God exists, learning about all these things would have kind of suppressed my doubts. You'd think that. But in reality, that whole two years, what did it get me? Didn't see a single person come to Christ. Through that. In fact, my doubts actually got more severe through that process. And that's because the enemy's realm of operation is in the mind. God's is in the heart. The enemy's is in the mind. And what actually ended up getting me free from those doubts was an experience I had at a Robbie Dawkins conference. If you're not sure who that is, Robbie Dawkins is a vineyard pastor slash healing evangelist who travel, travels all around the world, equipping people to operate in the power of God. And you might think that when I went to this conference, I saw some miracle. I saw some crazy healing or, you know, someone sort of levitating in their chair or something like that. And that is what kind of convinced, that's what got me to get rid of these doubts. But it actually wasn't any of that at all. It actually came through his teaching. Robbie was teaching about how the enemy is the great identity thief and how he is constantly trying to make us believe lies about ourselves, constantly trying to steal our identity. And the Lord revealed to me a lie that I had believed about myself for two years. And it was this, that 
my mind is just different from most people's. That it's the way my brain is wired is in a way that I could never get free from these doubts. That I'm just always going to have them because that's just how I am. And when I realized that I believed that lie, I started rejecting it. No, I can do all things through Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. I'm a new creation. And through that, I stopped believing. I stopped having these doubts. I stopped believing that I was just one who would have these doubts. And to this day, I just don't struggle with that anymore. I just don't have this constant nagging thing. Maybe every once in a while. And, uh, but it's way easier to reject. So, and, I, and I heard a quote that really kind of sums all this up for me. And uh, I hope you find it cool. I find it really cool. It's from a guy named Chesterton. He says that some men try to fit heaven into their head. That's their goal, to understand everything, to fit heaven into their head. Whereas other men just try to get their head into heaven. And that's what I want to be. I don't care about understanding it all. I don't care about making it all make sense. I just want to get my head into heaven. I just want to be in the presence of God. I just want to give him my heart. That's it for me. That'll be enough. Don't need to understand it. <laughs> okay. <laughs> and, and so um, I say all that to emphasize the point that the enemy's primary way of coming at us is in the mind. Now to connect that back to what I was saying about the cross, I believe that half the world, the reason they reject the message of the cross isn't because they understand it and decide that it's not for them. It's because they've been fed lies about the cross from the enemy. Their perspective has been distorted. Their way of viewing it has been flawed. And they are in their mind, they're presented with an idea of the cross that isn't anything at all what it really is. And they reject that false idea and think that they can live their lives without God because of it. That's how the enemy has tricked half the world. I'm convinced of it. And what I want to do with the rest of our time this morning is talk about one major lie that I think the enemy feeds people and maybe even feeds some of us from time to time. And that lie is this, that the cross was God's way of guilt tripping us into obeying him. His way of guilt tripping us into worshiping him. I believe that's a lie that many people feel and many people think. So real quick, just imagine a time where you were guilt tripped. Could have been by your mom or by your dad. Um, and in when we are guilt tripped by someone, we usually have two reactions to that guilt trip. First, we understand that, yeah, I was wrong here. I messed up. You're right. And we apologize. We make things right. And we try better next time. The second reaction that I think we have when we are guilt tripped is that we react against the person and we react against what they're telling us to do because we realize that we weren't guilty, or at least we think that, that we're not guilty of anything. And this, this person is just trying to manipulate us and take advantage of us. And I think many people have felt like the church has been trying to manipulate them before or take advantage of them. And so when they hear this message of the cross, they think, I'm not guilty of anything. I'm not a sinner. I'm a pretty good person. I give the charity. I do all this. 
And so they react against not only the institution or the person that's trying to witness to them, but against the message of the cross altogether. There are some people who don't need, who realize that they, you don't need to convince them that they're a sinner. People on death row don't need to convince them that they're a sinner. But others are like, I just said, you know, I'm pretty good. I think I'm fine. I don't think I need that. And at this point is where I've heard before pastors and others, and even just in daily conversations, try to convince people that they are sinners. Try to convince these people, hey, no, you actually are a sinner. You do need the cross. And that's just another way of guilt tripping. And that's not the route I want to take right now. But what I want to do to kind of address that incorrect belief about the cross that I think many people have is read from a parable that Jesus taught on in Luke 18. And before, the, before we actually dive into this, there are two major characters in this parable. And I want to ask you all to see if you can identify with, or you once could identify with one of these two characters. The first is a Pharisee. And a Pharisee in Jerusalem at this time and all across the ancient world was a Jewish teacher, a lot like a pastor. And these were well-respected men in the community. I know when we hear the term Pharisee at this point, it has an extremely negative connotation. But I think back in this society, these were men who were pretty well-respected. And they didn't have that kind of negative connotation. These were men who we would see just as any, any of our pastors. The other character in the parable is a tax collector. And tax collectors were hated in Jerusalem and across the world, especially by the Jewish people. You see, the tax collectors were Jews who were working for the Roman government. And the Roman government had just conquered, had conquered the Jewish people. So these tax collectors were seen as traitors already by their own people. Not to mention the fact that these tax collectors would rip people off when they would collect taxes from them. They would go to them and charge them two, three, four times the amount of taxes they were actually owed and then would pocket the surplus themselves. And people knew about this, but they walked with the authority of the Roman government so they could get away with it. So these tax collectors were despised. They were hated. And actually, earlier on in that gospel, the author Luke refers to how Jesus used to eat with sinners and tax collectors. He puts them in different categories. You have sinners here, and then even worse than that are tax collectors. And I think for us, if, if I try to think right now about you know, a category of sinners and then worse than a sinner, just the worst of the worst sinners in our world, I think of rapists or pedophiles, just people who are seen as committing the most heinous of crimes. This is the persona of this second character in the parable. And I want to encourage you as we read this, it's going to be on the screen in a second. If, if it helps you to substitute Pharisee with pastor and tax collector with murderer or rapist, if that kind of helps the story really sink in, I want to encourage you to do that. So let's read this parable of Jesus's. Then Jesus told this story to some who had great confidence in their own righteousness and scorned everyone else. Two men went to the temple to pray. One was a Pharisee 
and the other was a despised tax collector. The Pharisee stood by himself and prayed this prayer. I thank you, God, that I'm not a sinner like everyone else. For I don't cheat, I don't sin, and I don't commit adultery. I'm certainly not like that tax collector. I fast twice a week, and I give you a tenth of my income. The tax collector stood at a distance and dared not even lift his eyes to heaven as he prayed. Instead, he beat his chest in sorrow, saying, Oh God, be merciful to me, for I am a sinner. I tell you, this sinner, not the Pharisee, returned home justified before God. So what was the point of this parable? I think the point is this. God just wants our heart. That no amount of good works that we can do can substitute for us giving God our heart. And no amount of bad works that we can do can prevent God from accepting our call to him if our call is coming from our heart. That's the point of this whole thing. The cross is God's invitation for us to give more of our heart to him, to enter into a relationship with him. And I want to ask all of us in this room to consider right now, how do we need to give more of our hearts to God? He doesn't want our charity if it doesn't mean our heart. Doesn't want our offerings if our heart's not in it. Doesn't want our worship if our heart's not in it. How can we give more of our hearts to God? And this is not something we got to figure out and completely understand. Just giving all that we know of our hearts to all that we know of his heart. I want to end with a story, a personal story. Um, kind of rela- it relates back to all this doubt stuff that I was going through for a couple of years. This is about, I, I would say, six months before I got free from it. And although I was having these nagging doubts every single day, I never really got close to losing my faith. Like never even got remotely close except for once. I was hanging out with a friend watching a TV show, uh, Law & Order SVU. Some of you are probably familiar with it. It's one of those criminal investigation shows where they apprehend and then put on trial a suspect and convict a suspect of a crime. And this show, the term SVU stands for Special Victims Unit. And the special victims were those who were victim, victims of an especially heinous crime in the eyes of the, the police force. And so these were children who had been assaulted. And these were usually, these were oftentimes women who had been sexually assaulted. And just really, really disturbing um, plots and disturbing image ideas. And I think it's important to, to, to know that those kind of things exist. But anyways, I was watching this show and the plot was this girl had been taken captive when she was age 10 by this man and forced to become his wife and then wasn't found again until 18 years later, until she was 28. And the investigators come in and they find her and her mind is all just distorted and flawed and doesn't, you know, can't think at all like a normal person. And that just that whole, that, that whole thing just really weighed on my heart, just weighed on my heart heavily. And I remember praying to God, like, God, what happened? Cause this actually happens. There goes out there right now. What happens to people like this? What is their fate? What is their life? 
And I'm really deeply troubled by this show. And then I get in my car to drive home. And there's not many cars on the road. It's night. You kind of only see the dim street lights. Everything just looked gloomy to me. Everything looked bleak. And I'm driving. My heart is just hurting, even though it's fiction. And all of a sudden, those doubts come upon me. Those nagging doubts that I'd experienced every day for the past, as long as I could remember at that point. Those doubts came upon me. And usually when I experienced those, I was able to reject them by thinking about some argument, you know, the moral argument, or by saying a quick prayer. But none of those strategies were working for me in the moment. It was like I was numb to them. And my heart is hurting more and more, and I'm feeling more and more numb, and the doubts are getting more intense. And I'm thinking to myself, like, this might be it. I'm about to lose my faith right now in this car. This thing I've had forever. And I'm getting more and more distressed, and I'm, I'm just so scared of that thought. But I can't seem to do anything about it, and I feel powerless. And I turn on the radio to a Christian radio station to try to get some relief. And it's my least favorite song that I could possibly hear on the radio. <laughs> it's one of those that feels so, in the moment, it's probably a great song. And there's probably some of you who really like it, so I'm not going to say what it was. But... <laughs> It just, it felt so inauthentic to me and so ingenuine. It just didn't feel genuine at all. And my heart is, my heart is, is being weighed down. The doubts are increasing. The song is playing that I dislike. And, the, and I, I, all of a sudden, just emotionally, I just erupt. And I just cry out to God. It's not fair. It's not fair that I have to deal with this. Why do I, God, why do I have to be the only one I know who struggles with this? Why am I different? And then this weird sense of peace came upon me. And I just prayed this prayer to God. It wasn't this, it wasn't this intense you know, emotional experience, just this weird peace. I prayed to the Lord, God, I'm sticking with you. I don't care if I don't believe this for a whole day for a whole week, for a whole month. I'm not abandoning this. I'm giving my life to this and I don't care what the consequences are. And in that moment, I didn't know it at the time, but I was beginning my journey of getting set free from this struggle I'd always had. And it came from my heart. That last prayer, that was a heart prayer. I wasn't, it wasn't making sense in my mind. It was coming from my heart. Because while the enemy operates, tries to afflict us in the mind, God just wants our heart. The cross was God crying out for your heart and for more of your heart. And I think sometimes we just need to cry out to God like that. Like the, like the tax collector in the parable, like me in my car. Sometimes we just need to cry out. And I think that oftentimes we believe that withholding our emotions when we are Interacting with God is a way of being self-controlled or of being more pious. But what I really think we're doing there is withholding our heart from him. He wants it all. He doesn't just want us when we're composed. He wants all of our hearts. And I think that there's maybe some of us in this room right now who need to have a heart-to-heart with God, who have something to cry out about. 
And God is just waiting. He's just desperate to connect with your heart. That's why he sent his son to suffer on the cross, to bring you into relationship with God. So JJ and the band are going to come back out at this point. Here's what I want to encourage anyone that feels like they need to, to do. As we are worshiping, um, I think that I think that God's going to have some heart-to-heart moments with, with some of us in this room. And I want to encourage you, if that's you, if you know that you need to have a heart-to-heart with God, I want to encourage you to come to the front on the sides here and kneel if you're able or just kind of stand there bowed um, and have that moment with the Lord. You could do it in your chair, but I want to encourage you to take a risk to really show God, I'm coming to you. I'm ready to give you more of my heart. You're worth it. So let's all stand. And I'm going to pray. And then invite anyone who feels like they need to, to come to the sides. I think it'll be really cool for, for us. So Holy Spirit, we welcome more of your presence in this room in Jesus' name. Come be with us, Father. Thank you for the cross, Lord. Thank you for your love for us and for your heart for us. And God, please just continue to teach us how to give more of our hearts to you. And Lord, I pray a special blessing on those who you're about to come and have a heart to heart with. Touch us, Father. Reveal to us your heart for us, your ways. In Jesus' name, amen.